I started getting nervous. It was 9.01, and we had agreed to meet at 9. This is my first date. The night before this, I'd asked this girl out, and we had agreed on a place to meet at a time, and she was excited. At least I thought she was excited. And I was excited too, but here I was the next morning, 9.01, she wasn't there. 9.05, she wasn't there. 9.10, she wasn't there. And I didn't have her phone number. I didn't have a way to say, hey, did you stand me up or, or what? Rookie mistake, I know, I should have had her phone number. Well, it turns out, I got in touch with a mutual friend who got in touch with her. Uh, there was a miscommunication. So she didn't stand me up. She was waiting for me to pick her up at her house, which would have been a better move anyway. And I'm at the restaurant waiting for her to show up. And so I was glad we got to have our breakfast date, and it was really good. Now, part of the reason why, and many of you have stories like this, part of the reason why dating is stressful, it's really fun, but it's also stressful because you are trying to prove to some other person that you are worthy of being liked and eventually loved. And so you're afraid, like, am I going to be rejected? And you're trying to figure out, are they worthy of being liked and eventually loved? You could say it this way. When you're dating, you are living for someone's love. You're living for their love. But when you get married, there's a shift that happens. And no longer are you living for your spouse's love. You are living in their love. There's a big difference. Because you get married, you say, till death do us part. That's the intention of marriage. And then you find out that your spouse snores. <laughs> you find out that they don't pick up their dirty laundry off the floor, that they're terrible with a budget, that their taste in Netflix shows is terrible. <laughs> but you're stuck with them. And you're living in their love. And there's something beautiful about that. There's a comfort. There's a security. Because even when they see the rough parts of you, they're not going anywhere. In 1988, I put my faith in Jesus and I became a Christian. And in that moment, I moved from living for God's love to living in God's love. I no longer needed to prove my lovability to God. I was lovable, so lovable that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for my sins. And I trusted that, I received that, and experienced that, and my life was, was transformed. And now, as a believer in, in, in Jesus, I live in the love of God, not for the love of God. But it is also true that while I live in the love of God, not for the love of God, Many times in my life, and even now, I struggle to live out of the reality of that. I, at times, act like I'm still living for God's love. Remember in high school and college, getting exposed as somebody who, who's judgmental. I have a, you know, had a judgmental heart. And underneath that judgmental heart was this attitude that, you know what, we're all really trying to compete or we're trying to become worthy of God's love and I'm just a little bit more worthy than you are. That's what judge, judgment's about. In my adult life, when I've made mistakes, I mean big mistakes, you know, you have those moments, you're like, yeah, I know God still loves me, but does he like me? It's a little bit like with your kids. I was on a 10-hour road trip yesterday and by the end of those, you know, you, no, nobody likes each other. 
and you're going to bed and your, your kids have been getting on your nerves all day and they're like, I love you. And you're like, I love you too. <laughs> Through clenched teeth. And I kind of felt like that's how God feels about me. Like, I love you, right? And even now, I mean, there's, there, there are times where, listen, if you were to just look at my life and say, is Matt living like he is living in the love of God or for the love of God? I'd be living for the love of God. Can you relate to that at all? Do any of you ever struggle with relating to God in that kind of a way? You know, some of you, the primary way you relate to God is you're living for his love. I mean, you, you really believe that your lovability is directly tied to your performance, to your behavior. Others of you, you're like me. You know, you, you came to know Jesus. Maybe it was at a young age. You received the love of God, but you still feel the spiritual residue of an approach to God based on your behavior. And you find yourself at times tending towards, I'm living for God's love. Some of you, you've been walking with God for 50 years, and you, you live in the love of God. That is your life. And yet, I would be willing to guess that for every one of us, there are places, there are inconsistencies, there's parts of your life and your heart where that's not true, where you struggle to really believe it and to live in the love of God. And then maybe some of you today, you're not even sure God's real. Maybe you came today because a friend dragged you here or you wanted to get lunch with a group after church, and you're just not even sure, and I'm so glad that you're here. But for all of us today, wherever you are on that spectrum, what would it look like for us to live in the love of God more than we are now? I mean, if God is real and if he loves you, then there may be no more important journey than coming to live in the love of God. Is that possible? And what does that look like? If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 8. And so we're going to be this morning, Romans chapter Eight, we're looking at a passage that's all about the love of God. This is the most elevated, transcendent description of God's love in the whole Bible. But, but one thing that we're going to pull out as we go through this is what kind of love is the love of God? We, we say God is love, for God so loved the world, but, but what is God's love like? We're going to see three things in this text, and then we're going to apply this to our own hearts and lives today. Paul, he begins in verse 31 of chapter 8. He says, what then shall we say in response to these things? What things? Well, Paul, right here, he, he, he's looking back on really the whole chapter, but specifically the, the previous three verses where he has said that all of us who trusted in Jesus, we will be conformed to the image of Christ, and we will be glorified, and there's nothing that can disrupt that. And everything that happens to us along the way, the good, the bad, the ugly, it's all used by God as a part of that plan and a part of that process. So now Paul's saying, if that's true, then what shall we say in response? And what, he, and what Paul says is he actually asks five questions. Paul would have been a great lawyer He's, he's a great question asker, and what he's doing is he's working out the implications. He's saying, if everything we've talked about so far in this chapter is true, then here are the implications. Here's his first question. 
Paul, he says this, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, this does not mean that no one can be against us. If we're Christians, if you just take away the first part of this sentence and you say, who can be against us? The answer is a lot. A lot can be against you in this life. The key word in this sentence is the first word, which is if. It's a conditional clause. It could also be translated as since. Paul is saying, since God is for us, or because God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer is nothing, no one. That if God is for you, it makes not a shred of difference who's on the other side, who's against you. In middle school, I remember one day I went over to my friend Kyle Trotter's house. And this was around sixth grade where you want to be, you want your independence, but you're not mature enough to handle it yet. And the way that we got independence is we would ride our bikes to the grocery store, which was, you know, lame, but it was at least we were doing something on our own. We felt, you know, this is cool. So we, would, we rode our bikes to the local food lion close to his neighborhood. And I remember we parked on this one day and we were about to walk in and three older kids came out of the food line and as they walked by us, they saw our bikes and the, the, the biggest of the three, and they were probably high schoolers, as they walked past us, they said, hey, your bike stinks to my friend. Now, my friend Kyle loved his bike. He loved bikes and he loved his bike and so I felt defensive, protective. Like this is, you're not gonna make fun of my friend Kyle's bike. So they walk past and as they walk past us, I turn around and I say, oh yeah, well you stink. <laughs> That's the best I could come up with. He says, your bike stinks. I say, oh yeah, well you stink. And then the, the kid who had said it, he wheels around and all three of them turn around and they start walking back towards me. And he says to me, what'd you say? And you know what I said? Nothing. <laughs> I said, what'd you say? Nothing, <laughs> right? Why did I say that? Why did I respond in that? Because I'm smart. Because they would have, either I'm a coward or I'm smart, some combination of the two, they would have pummeled me, right? So internally, there's this moment of I backed away. Why? Because I was outnumbered and I was outgunned, as they say it. What Paul is communicating in this text is for the Christian, there is never a moment ever where you are outgunned, where you are outnumbered, ever. Can you imagine if we believed that? The kind of confidence that we can have. So the first thing we, we see about God's love in this chapter is this, that God's love is undefeatable. It is undefeatable. That if God is for you, no one, nothing can stand against. And Paul, he continues the next question. He says, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? So if God loves you enough, he's saying, if God loves you enough to not spare his only son but to give him up, you can be confident that he will continue 
to be loving and gracious to you. And then he works out the implications of Jesus coming and dying in our place. This is what he says. He says, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? So the image here is of a courtroom. And an accusation is being made against a defendant. And he's saying that, you know, Christians, he's not, he's not saying, by the way, that there's never any accusations made against Christians. There are. I mean, Satan's very name means accuser. Satan's spiritual evil is always trying to condemn us to say, you're not good enough for God. Our, our own hearts condemn us at times. So we still feel accusations. But he says, who will bring any charge against God's elect? And this is how he answers the question. He says, it is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. So his point is not that no one makes accusations. It's that accusations don't stick to you, to the believer in Jesus. Why? Because we have already been declared not only innocent by the judge in the courtroom. We've been declared righteous, justified, the righteousness of Jesus imputed to us. And then he points out why. Look at the next phrase. He says, Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. You see, for the Christian, Christ's death makes condemnation an impossibility. It is not possible. But Paul, he goes further. He says, not only that, but Christ is right now interceding for you. What does that mean? What does that mean for us? Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, which is the position of power and authority. And Jesus is using all of his power and authority to ensure that you are free from accusation that you are free from condemnation. Isn't that just staggering to consider? And so the, the, the second thing we pull out of this text about God's love is that God's love, it's undefeatable, it's unquestionable. It is unquestionable, and that, that's true in at least two ways. One, there can be no question that God loves you. Because God demonstrated his love for you through Jesus. God did not spare his only son. Sometimes we, we develop a bad theology as Christians where we view Jesus as the good guy. It's like good, good cop, bad cop. Jesus loves me. God doesn't really love me. He's a God of wrath. But because Jesus died for me, God's like, okay, I guess I have to love Matt. But, but, but theologically, biblically, what's more true, it's not that the cross causes God to love you. It's that the cross reveals God's love for you. And there is a world of difference. You see, the heart of God from eternity past was dead set on loving you at infinite cost to himself. The cross reveals that about God. You know, one of the worst parts of parenting is the shots. When you have a, a baby, three-month-old, six-month-old, that you take them to the doctor and they get shots. And it seems like it happens so often when you have a newborn. And one of the worst experiences is being in, in that doctor's office with your child, and your child is not old enough to understand what's happening, and you have to hold your child down. Parents, you know what I'm talking about. 
And in that moment, sometimes it's so painful, you can't even look. You can't even look. But if you look, sometimes the, the eyes of your child are looking back up at you, and they're just crying, and it's almost like they're saying, Daddy, why? Why are you holding me down? Now, God did not hold Jesus down at the cross. Jesus, he said, I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life. It's mine to lay down. So Jesus did that. But what is also true is that God asked him to do it, that it was the will of the Father to crush him, Isaiah says. Now, why in the world? Can you imagine, parents? Can you imagine? Your only son, why would God go through that out of love for you and for me? How much must God love you? This is what Paul is saying. God loves you. His love for you cannot be questioned because of Jesus. And the other sense in which this is true is that because of God's love for you through Christ, no question, no accusation, no case can be made against you. The case is settled. You are forgiven and accepted and justified by God. And there is no double jeopardy for the people of God. It's done. God's love is unquestionable. And then Paul, he, he continues on. And this next question that he gets to, that, you know, in this series of questions, it's the most significant one. Because if you don't get the answer you need from this question, it doesn't matter the rest of it. It doesn't matter how you answer. One, one commentator, he said that, that in this section of scripture, we're climbing a grand staircase, and this next question is the top step. And this is what Paul says. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? This is the most significant question because this is the heart of the matter. Listen, if God is for you, and if God has declared you righteous, then you only have one thing to fear. And it's losing God's love. I mean, think about it. If the God who made the universe and holds it together is on your side and has declared you righteous, the only thing that you can be afraid of is losing his love. And maybe today, again, just to acknowledge, maybe you're here today and you are afraid of losing God's love or you're confident you lost it. Or you're pretty sure, but you think, well, maybe if I was really bad, if I made a big mistake, I would lose at least some of God's love. I know this, all of us, ever since Genesis 3, struggle to some degree or another to trust God's love for us. I mean, that's the root of all sin. Did God really say? Adam and Eve believing that God was holding out on them. God doesn't really love us. So they charted their own path. And that's the, the root of all sin in my life and your life. We do not trust that God has our best interest at heart, that God really loves us. And here's the thing. You can come to church your whole life. You can read your Bible cover to cover and still not have the answer to this question. And you can sing songs about it, but deep inside you wonder, is there something that can separate me from the love of Jesus how does Paul answer the question? Well, it's amazing. He, he spends five verses answering it. He spent four verses on the other four questions combined. 
five verses. And, and how he begins is he, he brings forward all of the things that might, in our minds, come between us and the love of God. And he brings them out. So look at what he says. He says, shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, shall any of these separate us from the love of God? This word for trouble is the Greek word for pressure. This word for hardship is more of a general word for affliction. One commentary I read, it said that these two together really are painting a picture of inner distress and outer affliction. It's pretty all-encompassing, isn't it? It sums up most of our trials in life. Just for a moment, picture the most intense inner distress and outer affliction you can imagine. You simultaneously lose your job, your kids walk away from Jesus, your wife leaves you, you get a, a diagnosis and the, the cancer is terminal. In that moment, can anything separate you from the love of God in Christ? He goes on, he says, persecution, which was not a, a possibility, it was a reality for the early church and even today. I mean, we lose sight of this, but last year alone, according to Open Doors, 360 million Christians experienced persecution worldwide. 6,000 Christians were murdered for their faith in Jesus. So this is still a, a reality. Can that separate us? He goes on, he says, famine, which some scholars think is really a reference to hunger here, but it could be the, the crisis of famine. I mean, they're so vulnerable in an agrarian society or nakedness, and this is most likely a reference to poverty. So famine or nakedness, really it's a picture of destitution. Can that separate you? I mean, literally, if you lose everything, if you go to Chili's after church and your debit card is declined and you look and you have nothing and you, you literally find yourself begging for food, can that separate you from the love of God? And then he says danger or sword, which again, for the people of God throughout history, was a very real threat. This is why he quotes from Psalm 44. He says, we face death all day long. And, and death here, again, you know, sword, this is execution. This is, I'm put to death for my faith. So can any of these things separate us? And you could have your own list. Can any of these separate? And look at what Paul says. He says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. His, and this is like the, the mountaintop of this passage. It's unbelievable how he answers this question. He does not say, Paul does not say, no. None of these things can separate us from God's love. He says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. And literally, the Greek here is super conquerors. It's like conquerors was not a big enough word and so he's like, we are more than super conquerors through him who loved us. And the power of this comes when we look again at the prepositions. Paul does not say, and this is what I wish it said, he does not say, no, after all these things are over, we are more than conquerors. Or because we're more than conquerors, we don't have to deal with all these things. He doesn't say, in spite of all these things, we are more than conquerors. What does he say? In all these things. In 
trials and tribulations and persecution and famine. And so here's what this means for the people of God, for us. First, we will experience the things that Paul just listed in these verses. I mean, Christians are not immune to any kind of suffering. Think about Paul. Think about his life. He experienced everything that he's talking about here. But the second thing that's true is that for the believer in Jesus, it's not just that we get through and we survive the cancer or the difficult relational breakdown or whatever. It's that we overcome that we are conquerors in the midst of... Now, how is that true? How is that true? The key is the second part of the verse. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And what Paul is doing is he's looking back at the cross. Notice he does not say through him who loves us, although Jesus does love us. What, what Paul is saying is, We are more than conquerors through him who loved us by dying on the cross for our sins. You see, for for Paul and for the New Testament, the anchor of God's love was the cross. And the reason why that's important for you today and for me is because sometimes we wonder if God loves us. We do. We, We go through unspeakable pain, confusion, And we wonder, does God love us? And and when we find ourselves there, a text like this, it invites us to not look down at everything that's going on around us, but to look back at the cross. Look back at him who loved us. Jesus on a hill outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago laid down his life for you. I mean, understand that you can love a child before they're ever born or adopted. That's why there's real loss in a miscarriage. And I want you to just consider that thousands of years, I mean, eternity passed, God looks down the corridor of time and decides to love you. Before you were born, before your great, 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 great grandparents were ever born, God in Christ decided to love you. And that is why we are more than conquerors. It's the ultimate statement of your value. It's not your circumstances, it's a past event. And so because of that, we're more than conquerors. Now, just another question, why why does the love of God make us more than conquerors? Because it doesn't always feel that way, does it? I mean, the ALS is eating away at your your body, or you're, you're having chronic pain or unbelievable stress in your work life or betrayal from a close friend? Why is it true that we're more than conquerors in the midst of all these things? It's because of what he's about to say. Look at the next verse. Paul, he says this, for I am convinced, and he's using the perfect tense of the word here, which to mean I have become and remain convinced. In other words, nothing's going to change my mind. What is he convinced of? I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus 
our Lord. Nothing. And if we had the time, we could look at each of those different words. He's, he's saying nothing, literally everything that he can think of. <laughs> he's saying none of it. Nothing in the human experience, no spiritual power if an angel came to God and tried to convince God not to love you. If the whole armies of hell tried to pry you out of the hand of God, nothing can separate you from God's love. Nothing. So the the third reality, and really what this whole text is driving at, is that the love of God for you is unchangeable. It's fixed Consider this, that the love of God is the strongest force in the universe, according to this text. And God has decided in his grace to place, to bestow that love upon you in Christ, and nothing will be able to change that. And I love that he uses the future tense of the verb, nothing will be able, looking forward. You know, there have been a lot of false predictions over time, just a, a couple, in 1943, the chairman of IBM, he said, I think there is a world market for maybe five computers. Okay, that, that was a little bit off. The year before the Great Depression, a professor of economics at Yale, he said, stocks have reached what looks like a permanently high plateau. Uh, my favorite, the record label that rejected the Beatles in 1962 This was their reason for rejecting the Beatles. They said, we don't like their sound, and guitar music is on the way out. It's a little bit off. Listen, the the future is hard to predict. Your future is hard to predict. I mean, it's just hard to know, but one thing is absolutely certain. You will be loved by God into eternity year from now, 10 years from now, hear me, 10,000 years from now, you will be loved by God because nothing can separate you from his love. Now, how, how do we apply this to our lives? I found myself this week just wrestling and, and, and thinking, it is so easy, isn't it, to, to sing about the love of God, to read about the love of God, and yet not be transformed by it. And so I want to give us a a tool to really drive the love of God deeper into our lives, and it's it's very practical. Now, this passage of Scripture, it begins with our thoughts. It's, It's about the way we think. You know, Paul, he's making a logical argument. Tim Keller calls it incredible, relentless, intense logic. He's just peppering these questions one after the other. And and part of what Paul is doing and the New Testament is doing for you and for me is saying, work out the implications. Work it out. I mean, if you're not overwhelmed by the love of God, you're not thinking. Think. So much of our spiritual life and really our, our whole life, it begins with our thoughts what we think. And so I want to give us a thought to take, consider, reflect. It's, it's simple, but it has the power to transform our lives if we let it. I, I read this in a Henry Nouwen book recently, and I've just been wrestling with this, and it comes out of this text. God loves me, and God's love is enough. I just want you to consider this as an idea. Not for me, but for you. 
That's what this is teaching. God loves you more deeply than you can imagine, unconditionally, eternally, and God's love is enough. You see, part of what this text is telling us, and this is so important, is that God's love not only secures us for the future, it sustains us now. This is not about getting to go to heaven when we die. I mean, Paul, he's in the midst of all of this stuff that he experienced, he's undefeatable. He He sees himself as a super conqueror. Why? The sustaining love of God. See, it empowered him, gave him joy and peace and confidence. God loves me, and God's love is enough. So here's what specifically I want to invite you to do this week, is to take that idea and to work out the implications. Let Let me give you a kind of a model And this was shown to me by a mentor a few years ago, and this has really been life-changing for me because it's made me realize how so much of my behavior begins, not with my feelings, my actions, but with my thoughts. And this is true biblically. And so I want you to write these four words down on the left side of a page this week, or you could do it on your phone. Thoughts, feelings, actions, results. And then I want you to write this thought at the top of the page. God loves me and God's love is enough. And then I want you to just go down the page and work out the implications. Think, along with the New Testament, what what are the implications of this? And so let me just give you an example. If that thought is true and if I truly believe it, that God loves me and God's love is enough, what feelings is that gonna produce in me? And here's a few that I listed, and you'd have to do your own list, but for me, I, when I think about it, I think, well, if I, if I really believed that, I would feel more gratitude, I'd feel more peace, feel more security, I'd have more courage. And then you go down the page, and you say, okay, if that's true, if I believed that, if I thought that, and if I felt that way, then how would I act? What would be my actions? And here's a few that I wrote down. That I would trust God more, I'd have less anxiety, I'd love others better. And then again, you just go down the page and say, okay, if that's true, if all that's true, then what are the results? And you're just imagining into the future here. What would the results be? And just, you know, a few again, if, if for me, if I really believed this, I would have a deeper experience of God. I'd have more contentment, have a greater impact on others. And what, what you're doing when you do this, what we're doing is we're working out the implications, and we're pressing this thought deeper into our lives. This is not positive self-talk. That is, this is internalizing the truth of the gospel deeper and deeper. Because I think it would be a, a mistake for us to think I can read my Bible for 10 minutes a day, I can come to church once a week, and have the love of God shape my feelings behaviors in my in my life but if we do this it will have a profound impact on our lives if you every day just imagine for the next month if you just did this every day you begin with this thought what are the feelings actions results for a whole month i guarantee it would be transformative it have a profound impact on you and here's why this is so important because all of us we have alternative gospels. We have alternative scripts floating around in our minds. 
Let me just give you an example. This is one of the thoughts, and a lot of times we're not conscious of it, but this is what we believe. I am loved by God as long as I behave. Anybody ever struggle to believe that? When you have this deep inside, even if it's subconscious, again, what are the, what are the feelings that come from that? What are the actions that come from that? What are the results? If you live out of this place, a few things are true. One, you never feel like you're enough. You have a constant low level of anxiety about where you stand with God. You feel like God maybe loves you, but he doesn't really like you. Another example, some of us, we believe, I'm the sum of all my past mistakes. You know, you can listen to me talk about the love of God. You can sing about it. You can read it. But you don't experience it because deep down, you are convinced that God still looks at you through the lens of what you did 16 years ago or three years ago or last month. See, that's in there. And until we do the work of internalizing a different truth, it has a profound impact on us. Last one, you know, and this is one I think we all struggle with, so common, I'm okay as long as I have blank. And, and many of us don't even know that we believe this to be true. But if you really, really contemplate Maybe for you it's, I'm okay as long as I have my status, or I'm okay as long as I have the respect and admiration of my peers. How about this one? I'm okay as long as I have my family. I'm okay as long as I have enough money to retire. I'm okay as long as I have my health. A lot of times we don't even know we're believing that until whatever we put our hope in is gone. And the spiritual journey is, over time, by the grace of God, it's, it's putting into the blank this and only this, God's love. It's us learning to believe this to be true, that I'm okay as long as I have God's love. And the beauty of the gospel is that you have it. Permanent, unconditional so how can we internalize this deeper? And, and again, I'm just giving you one practical way to do it. I encourage you this week to find time to do it. And again, it's, it's to help us let this sink deeper into our hearts and into our lives. That God loves me and God's love is enough. Because that's true. And if you build your life around that thought, it can change everything. And I'm speaking as a fellow Struggler, I'm wrestling with this. There's parts of my life right now where I'm so anxious. I don't believe that God's love is enough. I don't. I'm saying, God's spirit, would you help me deeper to trust that this is true? You know, one of the first things we learn in the Christian life is one of the very last things to sink in. And it's this, that Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Many of us, we sang it, you know, four years old. We, it takes a lifetime to really believe it to be true. But it is. And today, wherever you're coming from, God loves you more than you will ever comprehend. How can we let that bear weight on our hearts today and change? Because again, it will change everything. May it be so. Father, we thank you for your love. And we're just so grateful uh, for a text like this that just shines a light on your love for us in a way that just escapes language almost. It just feels so lofty. 
and it points our eyes and our hearts to you, God, in gratitude and in awe. We just stand in awe of your love. And Lord, I, I pray that you would help every one of us to take a step to, to, to try to do the work of really contemplating, meditating, just internalizing this in a deeper way. So Spirit, would you help us? Would you help us to be people who believe this and are shaped by it, who love others because we have first been loved by you? God, that's what we ask. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.